I'm Captain Kirk. Fascinating. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. Thank you, thank you. Love you. Most illogical. I saw. Well, that was different. Yep, rousy, but different. Places, please. And here we go. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, bears, chickens, and tribbles to episode 19 of the Muppet Trek podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Jarman, and we are here to compare, contrast, and confer about our two favorite franchises. And what are those franchises, Steve? That's the Muppets and Star Trek. We have been doing one-to-one reviews of The Muppet Show and Star Trek, the original series. And tonight, we're covering The Muppet Show with special guest star Juliet Prowse and Star Trek original series episode Tomorrow is Yesterday. So tell us about our guest star this week, uh, Juliet Prowse. I had not heard this name before. Yeah, she was uh, raised in South Africa. That She's was that a accent. Okay. <laughs> and performer whose career ran 40 plus years and spans stage, film, and television. She got her big break with the 1959 movie Can Can. Now, well, that's where she first met Frank Sinatra. They got randomly engaged in 1962 and then Whoa. quickly broke it off. The, she then went on to star with Elvis Presley in the movie GI Blues. They also had a short. Sl- you know, fling slash affair. She had a mildly successful film and TV career, which led to a long running residency in Las Vegas. But what does our generation know her from a crazy incident in the late eighties where she was mauled on two separate occasions by the same 80 pound leopard. (laughs) What once was on a movie set. And the other time was when filming something for the tonight show. Uh-huh. The second time was so bad. They had to reattach her ear. Oh my God. I did not know beyond this at that, all. Oh, we don't know her from anything. That's so sad. <laughs> That's insane. Two separate occasions. Oh the same leopard. Stop messing around with leopards. Get a different leopard. Yeah. <laughs> or just no leopards. Just stay away from leopards. Yeah. Man, oh god! Uh, but this week's moment show uh, is is a little bit more tame than that story I just Good. told. The show opens with the musical number "Manamana," where two pink things harass an orange-haired caveman while singing a cute little song. Backstage, we find Kermit. There's a cool effect here where he drinks milk. Scooter and Muppy, the dog, are backstage and tell Kermit that they want to perform. Kermit is reluctant, but Scooter informs him that Muppy is his owning. Uh, theater-owning uncle's favorite act, so Kermit puts them on. On stage, Gonzo attempts to eat a rubber tire to the music of Flight of the Bumblebee. The audience does not like it. Uh, Backstage again, Muppy apologizes to Kermit, but then demands his own dressing room. Following this, we finally get to meet Juliet Prowse. She remarks that she has never had to share a dressing room with a guy who ate a tire before. (laughs) Juliet then takes the stage, performing a dance number to the song Solace with eight prancing antelope neon puppets. Mm-hmm. It's a strange but neat effect. Following this, we find ourselves at the dance. The best joke this week is two pigs. Do you prefer Shakespeare or to bacon? And he says, oh, I prefer anything to bacon. Uh, real good pig joke. Up next, Ralph performs <laughs> you and I and George. It's a lovely little number. Not really a standout. Next, we have the talk spot. Kermit talks about his lost ambition for dancing and Juliet hits on Kermit and they kiss. Mm. backstage one more time uh, Kermit struggles to put on the show and finally just loses it with Muppy when he suggests that the name of the show be changed to the Muppy show heck no 
On stage, we have a Wild West cowboy sketch with a much deeper voice, Fozzie Bear. Ralph narrates as the wise piano player. Fozzie uses pickles as guns and tries to rob the saloon. Fozzie then pulls a carrot and finally an exploding apple. Statler then gets an exploding cigar bit out of nowhere as Waldorf remarks that explosions aren't funny. We get a quick cut where Julia's feather boa ends up coming to life and spooking her. Yeah. Muppy then refuses to take the stage. Fozzie fills in and it becomes Simon Smith and his dancing bear. Following this, we get to hear the Muppet Glee Club conducted by Kermit. In production order, we get the introduction of Piggy because the Juliet Prass episode is actually the first one in the actual production order of the show Ah. uh, who performs temptation and throws herself at Kermit. In this sketch, the voice of Piggy, uh, the speaking voice, is done by Oz, but then the singing was done by Richard Hunt, and then they would share the role for the bulk of season one. Ah, I see. We find ourselves at the final Kermit, uh, final curtain. Kermit gives Juliet a Muppet version of herself and insinuates that it's something they always do, but then they only do it for one other host, and then it never happens again. Yeah, wasn't it the uh, singer-songwriter guy? Maybe. I can't remember. Yeah. And Menomina takes over Statler and Waldorf's booth, and that is this episode of The Muppet Show. Mm-hmm. Dermot, let's talk a little bit about the music, because there's some good stuff this week. There is. Menomina, it's from an Italian songwriter, Piero Umilani, who wrote the film's score and did composing. A lot of people tote the trivia fact around that this is a Swedish song, but it's not. It's because it was made famous by a film called Sweden, Heaven, and Hell, a documentary. But it's just gibberish, right? It's not words. Yeah, but it's still a tie. Everyone <laughs> thinks it's Swedish. It's not. Uh, Flight of the Bumblebee, written by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov from an opera, The Tale of Sar Sultan. It's actually really an unimportant part of the overall opera, but this is one of the only pieces of music from it that is widely known or even remembered today. Mm-hmm. Solus, the dance number with the weird antelope things, uh, written by Scott Joplin, who we mentioned in a prior episode as the father of ragtime music. Yes. Simon Smith and his dancing bear is written by Randy Newman, (laughs) Oscar winner and Pixar theme song making madman. He was actually working on a song for Frank Sinatra Jr., got distracted, found a rhyme he liked and wrote a song around it. Dance back, go to dance on the stage. <laughs> it was a huge departure point in his career. And when he finally began writing these really unconventional songs, uh, fun fact, Randy Newman also wrote the song. You can leave your hat on. Wow. You can leave your hat on. <laughs> yeah. Randy Newman. Uh, and then finally, Temptation, made famous by Bing Crosby in a film from 1933 called Going Hollywood. Fun Bing Crosby fact. He was a part owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates and actually cameoed in the original 1951 Angels in the Outfield, which featured the Pirates as the struggling team. I didn't know there was an original. Yeah, neither did I, actually. (laughs) Uh, So, Jarman, what did you think of this episode of The Muppet Show? Well, I will say first that people only listen to this uh, show to hear us sing snippets of songs. That's what they come here for, right? I mean, mean, yes, and they stay for the charm. (laughs) Uh, and also, I, I really I think that soulless song uh, you say ragtime, I think that actually is featured in the musical ragtime somewhere. So I remember that uh-huh. being used in there. Um, I could be wrong on that fact, but I, I knew I knew that song from somewhere. Um, just like a lot of those episodes we've talked about, Juliet Prowse is not featured nearly enough as the guest host. Um, she's a world class dancer, supposedly, and they use her in one number. Uh, why didn't they use her more? I have no idea. Maybe her schedule didn't allow it. 
Um, she's beautiful. I can see why Frank Sinatra and Presley were into her. Um, but uh, other than that, I thought the episode moved very fast. So I'll give it that. Like it was jumping around, had a lot of zingers and it kept moving around. There wasn't a lot of consistency throughout, but uh, they did have the ongoing story of Muppy trying to take over the show and yeah. having all these demands. So that was fine. Uh, and being the first in production order, I thought this was pretty good considering that because um, we've seen a lot worse ones. But I still would say this is the bottom of the pile because uh, not the very bottom, but just because there wasn't there was no host synergy with the show at all. And that's really important to me. But another factor is that there's Menomina in this. And this is the first occasion that the Muppets have done Menomina. Uh Yeah, that's such a famous song so. now for the Muppets. Like everyone knows that song. That's like a thing. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a worldwide so- known song because of the Muppets, really. And did, I'm guessing they did this several occasions after the show on different shows and movies or something. Maybe. Probably. They did so it for at least one of the sequels. Okay, yeah, because it's so famous. Um, um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's it's a decent episode. What do you think of it? Uh, I agree, Julia Prowse. She's only in like three things in the whole episode. Mm-hmm. Um, her talk spot with Kermit is good. I've got to give her that. It was cute. Um, and otherwise, it's really, to think of this as first in production order, I think is tough because there's so many things about it. Like, you, you're right, the Muppy backstage story. Right. is great and really a hallmark of what the show would eventually become. But you're right. There are episodes after this that we've already watched where the backstage plot is a wash. Just completely disjointed. Yeah. Not connected at all. Completely disjointed and terrible. So it's weird to see it f- fit so well here. Same thing with Gonzo. Gonzo is like clearly introduced here as like this crazy act. Yeah. And that nobody likes. If anything, Fozzie didn't really get introduced True. He had less screen time. Funny he had less screen time. So it's just funny to see some of these hallmarks of later in the show happen in this first episode and then disappear for a while. Showing their footing was kind of all over the place for a little bit. But oh, yeah, I really like the Muppet uh, Glee Club, by the way. I thought that was a really good, good sketch. And oh, yeah. It was cute. very cute. Great, great joint group performance as well. Yeah. Very pretty. Um, but yeah, I would put this one, I don't know, probably maybe towards the bottom middle of the pack. Same here. Not in the bottom, bottom. But yeah, Juliet Prowse could have been anyone. Yeah, I mean, no one, anyone could dance well, but there's just that one number, and that was it. So I was like, okay, yeah. I guess that's all we're getting from her. So, Jeremy, what, uh, tell us about the original series episode that we watched this week. So this time we had Tomorrow is Yesterday, and I am always a sucker for time travel episodes in Star Trek. And some people just throw them all out with the bathwater, but I like the time travel episodes. And this is the first one in Star Trek canon where they travel back to the 1960s. Go figure the current present time that the episode was airing. So we have the Enterprise being thrown back to Earth during the 1960s due to the effects of a high-gravity black star, and it's immediately picked up on radar as a UFO by the American military. The Air Force sends out Captain John Christopher, with the most American name in the world, uh, to go intercept the UFO and investigate. Uh, Kirk and the gang on the Enterprise are listening into the Air Force chatter, and they fear that they're going to be attacked by a nuclear missile or something. So they try to use their tractor beam to get Christopher's incoming aircraft. But the tractor beam accidentally crushes the jet, so they beam him on board at the last minute to save him. So Kirk and Spock agree they can't send Captain Christopher back to Earth because now he knows too much about the future, and it could disrupt the timeline. And they actually very cruelly tell him that his life doesn't matter enough to affect the timeline, so it's okay if they take him away forever, which I think should be (laughs) (laughs) soul-crushing. Brutal. (laughs) Brutal. Um, But Spock does some digging, luckily, and finds out that Captain Christopher's son, his future son, will actually be vital because he'll be on the first investigative trip to Saturn later on. So they have to find a way to get Christopher back to Earth. 
So Kirk and Sulu beam down to the airbase to recover the lost flight data from his crashed wreckage. It has photos and recordings of his radio chatter and stuff, so they don't leave behind the evidence. Uh, but they are intercepted by a guard, and he takes Kirk's uh, belongings at gunpoint. But when he opens the communicator, he accidentally activates the emergency beacon, so the Enterprise beams him aboard thinking he's Kirk or Sulu. And he keep him safely on board because he's totally terrified when he arrives on board the Enterprise. So Kirk and Sulu continue looking for the evidence, but then Kirk is captured, and Sulu's able to return to the Enterprise before they can see him. So Kirk is then interrogated, and quite a funny scene we can talk about later, but I really enjoyed the interrogation scene. Um, Captain Christopher convinces Spock and Sulu on the Enterprise that he knows the base's layout, and he can help get Kirk back. So they all go down to rescue Kirk, and just after they subdue all the guards, Captain Christopher grabs a gun and says he doesn't want to go back to the ship. But Spock, of course, anticipated Christopher doing this, his inevitable betrayal, so he sneaks up behind him and gives him the old Vulcan nerve pinch and knocks him over. So back safely in the ship, Spock and Scotty figure out that if they slingshot around the sun, they can reverse the time stream and place Christopher and the guard right back in their bodies with the transporter before any of this happened, because of course that all makes sense. Uh, so they won't remember anything and everything will go back to the way it was. But it's quite risky, but it works in the end. They return the airmen and they return to their own timeline without affecting anything they think. So that would be the episode. Tomorrow was yesterday. So a little bit of trivia from this. Uh, later in 1967, uh, physicist John Archibald Wheeler would coin the, term, coin the term black hole to refer to the phenomenon Kirk describes as a black star. So he was pretty close to the black star thing. Um, the Enterprise crew intercepts a radio report that the first manned moonshot will take place on Wednesday, and Apollo 11 was launched nearly two years after that on a Wednesday, oh. which is pretty cool. Wow. Um, Spock says that Captain Christopher's son headed the first Earth-Saturn probe, and in 2004, uh, the Cassini-Huen spacecraft reached the Saturn and its moon. So there wasn't a Captain, a Colonel Christopher involved, but the timing was actually pretty darn close, which is pretty cool. Uh, the star slingshot method of time travel that they use in this episode was, again, used in Assignment Earth later on and also in the movie uh, The Voyage Home. So they do the same thing with slingshotting around the sun. Uh, this is the first Star Trek episode shown on German television in 1972. Mm. So Germans would have seen this episode first out of anything. Uh, the episode is unique. That is the only episode to end on a close up of George Takei who does not even have the final line of the episode. So that was like his one moment to shine in the whole series. Wow. Okay. And the last thing, uh, the Air Force base that appears is the same set used by I Dream of Genie, which is kind of cool <laughs> for all cool. you Nick at Night fans out there. <laughs> so, Steve, what do you think of this episode? Uh, so the things I liked. Yes. Um, gripping intro. Really fun with the time change to kind of throw off the audience early. Good cold open. Yeah. Uh, literally like a cool fanboy. What if scenario that you get to watch as an episode? So that was cool. Like, what if they were here now? Like, they literally just did it. Yeah. Um, I like that it's kind of a preview of Voyage Home. You mentioned that, dealing with antiquated systems and time travel troubles. So I thought that was cool, too, as Voyage Home is probably one of my favorite Star Trek films. Yeah. We get a little bit of a heist film in the middle, which is a fun departure. And I loved, I got such a laugh out of it when they're, like, trying so hard not to mess up the timeline. And then they screw it up and expose another guy. Yeah. <laughs> Being on board the ship and everything. Um, things I maybe didn't like. For being the smartest guy in the room, how did Spock not figure out this guy would have had descendants? Yeah. <laughs> you think I would have checked that first. Uh, the scene where Kirk dodges around the room like a slippery two-year-old <laughs> with three other grown men 
was just too much. It was too implausible and insane. I love when he just throws his body at them, like jumps off the ground and just runs. And then goes like full limp. (laughs) Full limp. Um, And so, okay, so the time travel stuff. So I might be one of those people that has trouble here. So so they're going to return to a time before they appeared in the sky to begin with. And transport poured him back before they even take, before he's like, even sees them. Mm-hmm. But who's in his place then? I think the idea was there that be the, two of him, the, or is it just his consciousness? The crazy idea that I think they're trying to go for is that they transport him the exact millisecond that he was transported on board the enterprise. And then so that way he was, he never left, but then there's no copy, but that doesn't really work. So I know what you're saying. <laughs> and then here's the other thing. If Spock had this plan, to go back to before they even arrived, why the hell did they need to get the evidence in the first place? Well, he didn't have that plan until the end when he talked with Scotty and they figured it out. Right, right. But you're t- telling me that had him and Scotty sat for 10 more minutes, <laughs> for 10 more minutes before they went down or started any of this shit. That's true. So I'm going, oh, well, we can just avoid all this bullshit and not have an episode, Captain. <laughs> What's an episode, Spock? <laughs> Illogical. <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. Um, so maybe I'm one of those people that has problems here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I got a question for you. Is this not the first time we really see the food synthesizer? That's a good question. Uh, not the first time we see the food synthesizer. They did have it in like the rec room in another episode a couple times. But this is the first right. time you see it in the transporter room. And they did that for budgetary reasons because they didn't have the time or money to film a whole other set. Um, and okay. so they put it in there and then it stays there from now on. And then later on in their episode, Spock actually punches the crap out of that exact same food, food. Synthesizer. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And I should mention the, the fighting that we saw earlier with Kirk. That's famously called Kirk Fu. It makes no sense. All the chopping and the jumping and the, it's insane. <laughs> Kirk Fu is pretty fantastic. But what do you think of like the, I thought there's a lot of funny dialogue in this episode, more so than other episodes. Uh, a lot more with, um, Spock, honestly, that's true. I mean, Spock does make he makes like the ultimate straight man, mm-hmm. like a comedy duo perspective. So it's easy to play off him in that regard. There's also the computer that was hitting on Kirk the whole time. <laughs> yeah, and then he comes back and hears it, and it's an immediate annoyance. But then he's happy to hear it because it means he's there, right? And they made it back. That was cute. That was cute and good. A little touch. Um, but now I would put this one sort of middle bottom. All right. It seems same like as the, sort, sort of this is on the same level as the Juliet Prowse episode, I think. That's fair. Yeah, this is a very for me, very middling episode for me. But I like yeah. the banter kind of saves it for me. It makes it there's a lot of good writing and comedic stuff in this episode. So I like that. But I agree. Oh, with man. Yeah. But boy, do I have some Trek connections this week? I'm like excited. real ones. Not fake ones like I do most of the time. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, Juliet Prowse co-starred in a show called Mona McCluskey. From 65 to 66, one episode featured Grace Lee Whitney before her time as Yeoman Rand in her eight-episode run of Star Trek. Go figure. Uh, Also, so here's the other one. In between the time that the first pilot was filmed and failed and the second pilot had been picked up and announced, Leonard Nimoy co-starred with Juliet Prowse in a production of Irma LaDuce at the Valley Musical Theater in California. Can I just say that both the names of the productions you just mentioned were terrible names of productions? Irma LaDuce. <laughs> what was the first one, too? Um, Mona McCluskey. These are terrible names. <laughs> Who 
names these things bad for oh, marketing some dead PR guy so i had one trek connection this week i've never had one before oh so ed peck who plays colonel fellini the guy who interrogates uh, captain kirk yeah uh, he later went on to play a recurring role in happy days as a character named kirk and as we know, Ron Howard and Henry Winkler are also on Happy Days, and they both appeared on episodes of Sesame Street. And Henry Winkler was on the cover of Muppet Magazine in fall 1983. Holy crap. So Good find. There you go. <laughs> Bam. Bam. So some similarities uh, between these two episodes. Steve, uh, I got quite a few this, this uh, yeah, week. You go first. All right. I only have two. They're, they're kind of nebulous sometimes, but they were fun. So there's many references to little green men in the Star Trek episode and many little green horsey things in the Muppet episode. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And they're very, very alien. They are. There you go. Uh, both involve old time firearms and people being held at gunpoint. The guard and uh, then the, with the six shooter and Fozzie with his with his pickles. That was actually one of mine. Very true. Yeah. Uh, so both episodes have people slowly vanishing. Uh, Prowse and Waldorf in the Muppets, they both slowly vanish after Waldorf holds his breath and just disappears. And many characters vanishing by the teleporter in the Star Trek episode. All right. Well, that was my only other one. <laughs> well, my so last you one can, here. Uh, go to hell. I will. I stole You stole one of mine. I stole one of yours. Deal. Uh, Kirk spurns the advances of the female personality in the computer, while Kermit spurs the advances of Piggy once again during the uh, Temptation song. But that's a pretty common one we have between these yeah, episodes. Yeah, but I like it. It's, it's like that old faithful, reliable one. Yeah, it's always there for us when we need it. Yeah. <laughs> but what's that? No. That's oh, right. oh, that noise. Oh, no. oh, God. Transporter malfunction. All right, so every week we have a character from one episode transport to the other episode and take the place of that character. So what you got for us this week, Steve? So coming from the Muppets over to Trek, I have the orange-haired guy from the Manamana sketch come over <laughs> and replace the goofy security guard. <laughs> the guy gets paralyzed. Is like, is like really aggravated, and but then just kind of slowly accepts it, gawking openly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I have uh, Captain John Christopher replacing Juliet Prowse. Uh, she seemed pretty much just as out of place with the Muppets as he did with the Enterprise crew and especially Spock. And he could dance around with the little green men instead of little green horses. So that'd be cute. Nice. I've got the security guard replacing Fozzie in the saloon sketch uh, where he gets like teleported in and finds himself in the middle of like a weird saloon with Muppets everywhere <laughs> and pulls his gun, but then just slowly kind of accepts it. You really liked that security guard, didn't you? <laughs> he was really a good comic relief and cutaway. I, I agree. I liked him too. And they didn't even bother dealing with him <laughs> no. like in any real <laughs> didn't way. Didn't talk to him. You have a conversation. Uh, I want Statler and Waldorf to both replace the hard-nosed colonel who interrogates Kirk at the base. Um, this would have been Sam the Eagle, but he didn't appear in this episode, so I yeah, couldn't use no him. Yeah, no Sam. Yeah, I would have otherwise used Sam the Eagle for sure. But yeah, that brings us to the end of episode 19 of the Muppet Trek podcast. Join us next time for episode 20 of the Muppet Show with special guest Kay Ballard. And original series episode, Court Martial. So, from the lovers, the dreamers, and us. Live long and prosper, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Muppet Trek podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This podcast has been brought to you by A Play on Nerds. 